CJSW presents Body Slam Poetry, an eight-part podcast series about Calgary and Alberta's wrestling legacy in the current independent scene. In all the interviews I've conducted for Body Slam Poetry, I've asked questions in relation to try and articulate how fascinating the world of professional wrestling is to non-fans. Calgary-based professor and journalist Heath McCoy, who wrote the definitive tome on Stampede Wrestling called Pain and Passion, the history of Stampede Wrestling, compared it to the 1997 film Boogie Nights, directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. Official selection of the 1997 New York Film Festival, Boogie Nights, rated R. This analogy didn't just strike gold with me because Paul Thomas Anderson is our greatest living filmmaker, and I'll hear no argument to the contrary. And Boogie Nights is one of the most rewatchable movies of all time, but because it really was the perfect analogy to compare the territory wrestling days of the 70s and 80s where Stampede Wrestling thrived. Here's Heath. If you go to Boogie Nights, you look at it, and and, it starts out in sort of a kinder, gentler time, era of porn, right? Yeah. When I was like, even though it's still really seedy, it's still sort of, you know, you got a lot of dodgy characters in the business and it, it's not mainstream at all. It's it's like an underground sort of thing, but it was like a family, like, it, it, you know, Dirk Diggler and everybody, yeah. he sort of, there's there sort of a, he, he lost, he doesn't have a mother or his mother's surrogate, awful. So surrogate family. Yeah, he's got a, this surrogate family with him and it's sort of this, you know, it's as innocent as it can be, yeah. it's innocent. Given the industry, it's funny, right. yeah. Right, and then when the 80s comes in and it becomes, you know, um, the you know the reel-to-reel thing goes to, becomes uh, VHS and it yes. becomes, then the porn industry booms, cocaine comes into it and everything, and then the way all the characters get sort of destroyed because they, they fall into these pitfalls and it's really very much the same like With wrestling 100%. wrestling stampede wrestling was a mom pop shop sort of thing it was the mom pop wrestling shop and it was it was they there was their territory and they had their problems and they had their wild and crazy characters and everything but there was an innocence to it and then once it became this big business when the WWF came along everybody's taking steroids everybody's getting into the cocaine everybody's and then and then things are getting really crazy and then you got you know, Owen Hart falling out of the sky because he's in the middle of this ratings war between WCW and WWF, and they're trying to do it the wilder and crazier things and everything. So it becomes this. That's how I saw the Boogie Nights yeah. uh, comparison. Does this character have a name? His name is Brock Landers. His partner's name is Chest Rockwell. <laughs> they're great names. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's go back to the beginning, shall we? Episode 2, The History. So how did Stampede Wrestling begin? Well, wrestling has been around in Calgary since the 40s. Wait, hold on, Ben. You have the guy who wrote the literal book on Stampede Wrestling, Heath McCoy, on call. Why don't you let him explain the history, you dope? Take it away, Heath. 
Wrestling was around for, from the, in the 40s even, and it was a different promoter was here in Calgary. And then Stu was initially promoting, at first uh, he had a Klondike wrestling thing going on in the late 40s and out of Edmonton. But something happened with the promoters here, and the, the territory came up for grabs. Stu bought the territory. He, it, was, it sort of all happened around 1951, I believe. He bought the, he bought the Hart Mansion. Um, he, he started up the, the wrestling, which was called then called Big Time Wrestling. And for a very short window there, uh, Edmonton was the sort of base, and then it became a Calgary-based thing. The first round of Stampede Wrestling happened between 1948 to 1984, a major run where it was one of the biggest happenings in Calgary. Here's Heath again explaining what it meant to Calgary at the time. Stampede Wrestling had a kind of a folksy charm. Calgary in, in, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, Kind of a, even in the early 80s, different place than it is today, right? I mean, we're, we're a little bit more cosmopolitan today. We're a little, I mean, you know, there's some would say there's still some rednecky ang- angle uh, elements today, but I mean, it was it was uh, you know rich oil town, but very very sort of uh, you know very country oriented, very sort of very sort of rural in a feel sort of thing. And, and there wasn't a lot here. There was, I mean, you had you had the Calgary St. Peters, you didn't have the Calgary Flames, you didn't have a huge uh, um, nightlife, really. You didn't have, like, the, you know, even the skiing boom hadn't taken off so much at that point, right? So there was very, you know, the pop culture field and the recreational field was relatively limited. So Stampede Wrestling became a big part of that, and it had this charm that was very distinctly Calgary. For one thing, primarily, probably, you had Ed Whalen, who was a very respected local announcer. And he kind of treated it not too seriously. And he gets nailed for that sometimes too, but then he's revered for it in some, in some ways too. And some people say he was the actual star of Stampede Wrestling. He, he had a comedy element to it. He, he, with certain wrestlers, he had this sort of comedic rapport almost. He would taunt them and they would get angry with him. And he had this sort of hokey sort of sayings, you know, that might not have flown in other territories. It's a ring-a-ding-dong dandy. And, uh, you know, he had a signature sign off every every week you know that you know in the meantime and in between time that's it for another edition of stampede wrestling he had the, the pace down he had the beats down and everything i was a bit too young to be introduced to ed whalen through his work in stampede wrestling but i certainly knew of ed whalen as the legendary calgary broadcaster for the two and seven channel which later became calgary seven and then finally becoming global calgary in 2001 as it is today Waylon, who was the news and sports director, who was also the sports anchor and play-by-play announcer for the Calgary Flames, and you thought you worked a lot. Waylon used his broadcasting chops to add a sense of realism to the proceedings, and in Ross Hart's words, he classed up the joint. Speaking of, I also talked with Ross Hart, who had this to say about what Stampede Wrestling meant to Calgary as a whole. I think from a local perspective, it was... uh... A great place to go every Friday night to the matches, see the live production and then watch it on TV the next day. You know, in the 60s and 70s, even the early 80s, there was nothing else to do in Calgary. You know, there's uh, Stampeders football, you know, in the, in the summer and early fall and that was it. You know, there was minor hockey. You know, the Flames didn't become a franchise until about 1983. So for a lot of people, this was uh, their big weekend out, you know, to, to go to the uh, pavilion and see the live matches there, you know. I think on a entertainment level, it was great entertainment for, for people, whether they saw it as, as, as sports or theatre. They enjoyed that. They were very much uh, immersed with the 
with the stars and the storylines as well, and people believed it, you know. I mean, uh, wrestling might be seen today as, uh, as more show or entertainment, but, uh, you know, in that time period, people believed wrestling. They took it very seriously, and they were very passionate about wrestling. So, you know, and uh, they really got into the storylines, the rivalries, you know, the injuries, and uh, it was, it was very important, you know, and, I, and I, I know for even for a lot of older people who had mobility issues, that's all they'd do is they'd watch Stampede Wrestling on TV every Saturday. They would look forward to that, you know, and hearing Ed Will and calling all the blow-by-blow uh, -blow action, they, they just loved that, you know, so it was uh, entertainment for the, for the live audiences in Calgary and, and Edmonton and all the other centres where we ran, and then, uh, you know, to watch it on television and, you know, hear, hear the... Uh, the high-pitched interviews and the yelling and screaming and you know and fans really bought it you know and I, I think on a wrestling level um, the level of matches you know made it one of the best territories in the world because we we truly were an international promotion we brought in guys from yeah. from Asia from from Europe from the States um, you know even as far as Australia New Zealand and some from Mexico and uh, it was truly uh, you know one of the best promotions or territories in the world you know the, the, the caliber of matches was, was so good. It was a great opportunity for guys who were just kind of breaking in or uh, starting out, you know, to, to, to develop and get some experience. And it just became a, a great training center, a breeding ground, you know, for, for so many guys that worked out in the dungeon either with my dad or maybe grew, grew up and then uh, trained with uh, my brothers Bruce and Keith in one of their training camps. Pro wrestling transcended boundaries in Calgary. Speaking personally, my great-grandmother was a devoted viewer of Stampy Wrestling every week. I was not alive for this, but from retellings by my mother and other relatives, my great-grandma, who was German, would shout, Shoke him, shoke him, give him a shoke at the TV. And this was just from watching on TV. Who were some of the wrestlers in Stampede Wrestling who inspired this level of devotion, both on the face and heel side? Here's Heath McCoy. And then you even had characters that sort of came up. Well, the hearts were like Calgary through and through, right? Uh, and then you'd have like um, a, a star like Dave Rule, who, who was the, you know, Bill was the pig farmer from Hannah, I believe. And you had Archie the Stomper Goldie, who was from Carbon, Alberta. And he, 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 you know, he stomped people's heads into, into a fine paste with his big cowboy boots on, you know? And uh, it had a very distinctly Calgary feel. It's always a tough thing to say who started here because, right. you know, it's, it's territories and they, and they kind of, they got trained somewhere. And I know that Gene Kaniski, Archie the Stomper Goldie, uh, Killer Kowalski, again, I don't think a guy who necessarily started here, but he had a huge run here. Um, you know, and, and guys would pass through that didn't necessarily start here, like the Gorgeous Georges and the Whipper Billy Watsons. We go up. Lots of very influential people came from here as well, like um, Superstar Billy Graham, mm. who's essentially, you know, he went on to be the prototype for like Jesse the Body Ventura and, and more importantly, Hulk okay. Hogan. And he, he wasn't Superstar Billy Graham here. He was just a guy, a big, huge... Um, weightlifter Wayne Coleman you know he definitely got a start here as a wrestler um, you know guys like Ox Baker around through the territory Jake the Snake Roberts was here at an early phase the Junkyard Dog was here at an early phase of course the Hearts obviously came came up through here and then you had the, um, the Dynamite Kid and Davy Boy Smith completely revolutionized the business Dr. D. David Schultz Chris Benoit uh, got the start. Uh, Brian Pillman, like, yeah, I mean, it, it was it was sort of honky tonk man. It was sort of a training ground for so many wrestlers that went on to huge things. Bad News Allen, Bad News Brown, you know. Speaking of Bad News Allen, 
When I asked Heath McCoy what was the most memorable angle in Stampede Wrestling history, and again, this is the guy who wrote the book on the history. Co-signed as the definitive book on the Calgary wrestling territory by wrestling journalist Dave Meltzer to Bret Hart himself. He said it was Archie the Stomper Goldie versus Bad News Allen, and for very good reason. Here's Heath. I think the most memorable uh, was the, the, the whole Bad News Allen. There was a whole Bad News Allen, Archie the Stomper incident that happened December 82. It was sort of, I, I, can, I consider it like King Kong versus Godzilla almost, you're right? These, these two monster heels sort of that, that, that squared off with each other. Archie the Stomper was the monster heel of the late 60s and 70s. And then Bad News Allen was the guy, he was the most feared. He, that was my era. I was terrified of Bad News Allen. He was the most feared guy in the 80s sort of thing. And, Archie the Stomper comes back into the territory, hasn't been there for seven, eight years, I think, maybe longer. And at first they paired, you know, he was just another villain, so they're in it together, right? They're both working for Jar Foley and, and Wakamatsu. But it was this this whole angle that, you know, essentially Bruce Hart concocted. Somebody was going to turn on somebody in the ring. Bad News Allen turned on Archie the Stomper in the ring. It was a, it was a triple tag match. It was Bad News Allen, Archie the Stomper Goldie, and, and, and Archie the Stomper Goldie's fake son, Jeff Goldie. And as for the good, as for the heroes, basically, uh, they're in the ring together, and all of a sudden, Bad News Allen attacks Archie the Stomper from behind. Calf ropes him to the side of the, to the ring post, and he takes Archie the Stomper's, you know, you know, green faux son out into the concrete, pile drives him, breaks his neck. They pulled it off, and it was supposed to be an angle. It was, it was this great angle that would fill up you know, the seats in Stampede for, you know, for months to come sort of thing with this great feud between these two monsters. But compared to, like, Orson Welles' War of the Worlds because it was so well done. Captured the imagination. Oh, my gosh. Bad News Allen's, both of them, their promos, both of them. Like, Bad News Allen was raving and ranting and raving and taunting the crowd and saying that he he crippled, telling the Stomper, screaming to the Stomper that he crippled his son and this stuff. And, and the Stomper, who's usually a screamer and a yeller and everything himself, comes out there and he does this intense sort of like father who just lost his kid sort of angle and it was it was just so well done ed whalen bought the whole thing or at least he, he thought it was too violent and he quit on air it became a media scandal it was and it actually blew up in the heart's face because they lost their license and it kind of weakened them later when the wwf came trying to take over and stuff but that to me is the amazing stampede wrestling angle isn't that wild I'm kind of nostalgic for those days, honestly. As since it's widespread knowledge nowadays that pro wrestling is a work or a show, even the most heated angles can't resort to a license being taken away and a broadcaster quitting. That's a level of heat that the 80s territories could only bring. Despite all of that, going back to the folksy charm of Stampede Wrestling, it was at the end of the day a family business run by the Hearts, led by Stu and Helen Hart and their 12 children, many of whom joined the family business. Here's Ross Hart, who among his jobs was helping hand out and later design the body press programs. By the time it was about eight or nine, then uh, I was uh, allowed to start selling programs then. So I'd be outside greeting all the fans as they came in the building sometimes in very cold weather I'd want to sell all my programs before 8:30 when the matches would start so it was, it was always a, a frantic competition with my brother Brett and I Brett was three years older than me uh, to see who could sell their programs first and get into the warm confines of the pavilion and watch all the matches you know our whole lives evolved around wrestling because uh, 
my parents resided at the house and that's where the wrestling office was and that's where we lived as well so and then we would always be anticipating uh, the big Friday night you know when there'd be the television tapings and big cards at the pavilion but you know there were shows every day you know if six out of seven days a week there were cards out of town so my parents uh, their work their work was never uh, finished there'd be phone calls going all the time wrestlers calling uh, you know to get booked for my dad you know guys that wanted to come in and wrestle for us and then uh, uh, other promoters calling my dad uh, to discuss business deals and uh, exchanging talent things like that so there's so much activity based on the wrestling and and it was all kind of on the the second highest floor i guess of our house as stampede wrestling wasn't just about booking local talent but bringing star attractions in in particular during july when the calgary stampede was happening appropriately enough that's when you'd see legends like the madman from sedan windsor ontario's own abdullah the butcher come in as well as the one and only eighth wonder of the world andre the giant Everyone knows Andre. Even if you aren't a wrestling fan, you have to know him from Rob Reiner's classic 1987 film, The Princess Bride. This dude will be rubbing shoulders with Mandy Patinkin, Wallace, inconceivable Sean, and Robin Wright. And at once filming was done, go back and wrestle. Isn't that wild? Another key thing that set Stampede Wrestling apart was how they brought in Japanese wrestlers on excursion. One of the only territories that did that. Here's our boy Heath. That was one kind of cool thing about Stampede Wrestling. They would bring in not only sort of the North American wrestlers, but they would bring in stars from Japan, uh, going like, like like back to Kendo Nagasaki and people like that. You know, the Viet Cong Express and people like that. They would bring in a lot of British wrestlers, uh, Mexican stars. So they had this sort of a, a, a amalgamation of, of styles as well. And it was sort of a, and, and one thing about Stampede Wrestling too, it was it was a rough territory. Like Stu yeah. was one of those promoters that you couldn't come in there and kind of be weak, you know, unless unless you had a real good rap on the mic maybe, and, and you could draw fans in. But you had to be tough. He's one of those promoters. Like if you got if you got challenged by uh, you know a guy in a bar who thought it was all fake and wanted to take you on, like you better be able to take that guy yeah. on, right? And let me tell you, look up photos or videos of Stu Hart in case you aren't familiar. He was a tough dude, known for stretching people in the dungeon, the basement in the hard house where Stu trained wrestlers. Another aspect of Stampede Wrestling's legacy was its focus on work rate matches, meaning a higher amount of athletic effort rather than some of the hulking, slow, methodical matches you saw in the WWF at the time in the 80s. And no one showed the way of the future in pro wrestling more than British wrestler The Dynamite Kid. Here's Heath. He was even smaller. Dynamite Kid was probably 160 pounds or something like that when they when they first discovered him. They had to bill him as higher. And and Bruce Hart saw him uh, on some tour of England and saw him wrestling in some dive and thought, this kid is amazing. He was a bit of a little a sensation on the British wrestling scene, but nobody really knew him anywhere else. And then, uh, you know, Bruce Hart saw, and Bruce Hart was a little guy himself. And I think Bruce Hart thought, I can work with this guy. You know, Brett was pretty small at the time. He thought Brett could work with him as well. And Stampede Wrestling was really going through a bad phase. It was almost going to go under in that mid-70s range there. Mm. It was really not doing well from about 75 to, well, 77. And then Bruce Hart saw him and I thought, that we can do something with this kid. And, and they, you know, he made him these big promises and flew him in. And, and then half the promises they made didn't come true. And Dynamite Kid was mad. He almost left. And the first time Stu Hartley, eyes on him. You know, the story is that he looked at him and said, ah, you skinny little bastard, you know, and, and uh, 
But then the minutes he saw Dynamite Kid in the ring, like he knew he was agile, he was fast, and he had this intensity too. Like it's tragedy that he wound up in a wheelchair so young in life and everything. And but he was just fearless, reckless. He had this intensity the way he did things in the ring. Nobody had ever seen anything like that. And and he became. Uh, you know, Stu was another guy that believed in the big man. He wanted the big guys to be headlining. He wanted a big, he wanted a super, like a Wayne Coleman who became superstar Billy Graham because he just saw dollar signs in a guy that big. But the Dynamite Kid turned him around. Like the Dynamite Kid made him realize, wow, this guy can bring, put bums in seats. And put bums in seats he did. As we look into the modern day with stars like Winnipeg's own Kenny Omega and Chris Jericho, And yes, two of the biggest stars in wrestling hail from Winnipeg. But I'm not doing a podcast series on that. To the current day British phenom, Will Ospreay. Smaller guys who are more agile, who do moves you've never seen before. This is the predominant style of pro wrestling today that is popular. You aren't seeing people watching their giant Gonzalez tapes, I'll tell you that. The match quality in pro wrestling today is as good as it's ever been. And it's thanks to the legacy of Dynamite Kid, whose matches with opponents like Japanese anime hero Tiger Mask, and yes, Tiger Mask has had some form of anime since the character's introduction in 1968. Those matches are being taught in wrestling schools to this very day. This modern style is what Stampy Wrestling was doing from Dynamite Kid's debut. Another way Stampy Wrestling is more modern than a lot of territories of its time was its use in gimmick matches. None more prevalent than the ladder match. Yes, the ladder match. Arguably the most popular gimmick match of all time originated in Calgary. Here's Ross Hart explaining it. We, we had a lot of those crazy gimmick matches, you know, and uh, I think Dan Crawford was the one who invented this match one time. I think my dad had said to him, uh, I don't know what to do with Torquemada. You know, he, he was a, a villain, but he had been here for a long time, and maybe Tor wasn't getting over as well as he used to, and uh, my dad had kind of run out of ideas with Tor and was ready pretty much just, I think, to can him or send him to another territory, you know, and uh, he's kind of in the doghouse with my dad, too, for a few other reasons, and, uh, and Dan says, you know, I, I, let me come up with some idea, you know, where I could work with Tor, and then he came up with this idea of uh, hanging money, you know, from the uh, top of the ceiling of the pavilion, you know, or from the lights, and the, the only way you could get to that money is you had to climb up the ladder and whoever could get the money first would win it and it was just it was a, a crazy concept but it got over fantastic and you know and it sold out you know it was just incredible we, so the ladder match was uh, definitely a stampede trademark if that doesn't make you proud to be calgarian i don't know what will calgary alberta canada the originator of the ladder match should be on a sign when you drive into calgary Stampede Wrestling also had some other fun gimmick matches, which Ross will explain here. Some of the others, you know, like the street fights we had, the cage matches. I remember uh, the handkerchief match, right, where uh, the first wrestler to soak up uh, their handkerchief and the other's blood, you know, would win the match officially. Uh, Tape fist matches, right, you know, some were were pretty hardcore, you know, type matches, right, you know, and and as soon as we said we're not televising it, right, you would sell out because people say, well, we've got to see that match and uh, it's not going to be televised, right? Because people wanted to see the blood and guts and the violence, right? So, and, and Stampede just seemed to always be on the cutting edge of those really tough matches, right? Blood and guts matches that a promotion like Stampede Wrestling had are another sign of how modern and forward-thinking they were. As you can definitely draw a line from the matches Ross described, 
to what Paul Heyman's ECW or Extreme Championship Wrestling brought in the 90s, to today's hardcore matches, which include AEW literally having a match called a blood and guts match. Speaking of modern promotions, the New York Territory, WWF, now WWE, bought Stampede Wrestling in 1984. Here's Heath on what happened. So in 84, they shut their doors kind of thing. Vince McMahon bought the territory. He was supposed to pay Stu $1 million. It was going to be $100,000 a year for 10 years. And then Stu would get percentage of the gates, the WWE gates in Calgary and Edmonton. And it's funny because the Calgary fans at first were really loyal to Stampede Wrestling and they did not like the WWE shows that came were really poorly attended. Yeah. Suddenly... The New York territory coming in. Yeah, suddenly your Stampede Wrestling stars were... were uh, um, you know, like some of the loved guys, like the Cuban assassins, some people like that. They're sort of these undercard nobodies. All of a sudden, you'd have, the, you know, you'd have the Hart Foundation and the British Bulldogs were were put positioned as stars, sort of thing. But suddenly, the Hart, Bret Hart's a bad guy and stuff. Like people really did not take to it at first, and those shows did not do well. And so Vince said, "Oh, I made a I've made a terrible mistake here," and he reneged on his contract immediately. You didn't pay Stu. And then you had Bruce Hart, who felt jilted that the whole thing ended because he was sort of, he had these visions of taking Stampede Wrestling into the future. So when, and he was angry when it closed. Basically, after Vince pulled out, they were allowed to, they started up again. And Ed Whalen got them the TV spots again. The 1985 relaunch of Stampede Wrestling might have lost pillars like Bret Hart and Jim the Anvil Neidhart and the British Bulldogs, DB Boy Smith and Dynamite Kid. But they built the company around new stars like Brian Pillman and Edmonton-based Chris Benoit and delivered some amazing matches. It might not have had the same level of Calgary cultural penetration as Stampede had prior to 1984, but from 1985 to 1990, the promotion made a valiant effort and built some of the next generation's biggest stars. And when we think about the history of pro wrestling in any era or form, sadly, it comes with a lot of tragedy and scandal. Heath McCoy had this to say. If, if you think about the three scandals, tragedies, scandals in, 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 in recent wrestling history, or maybe of all time, you got the, the screw job in Montreal with Bret Hart, you've got the Chris Benoit murder-suicide thing, and you got the death of Owen Hart. And, and these all majorly impacted the wrestling scene. Implications still felt today. Um, you know, any wrestling fan knows about this stuff. Um, even new generation fans, because it's that huge. And these, these are all Stampede guys. These are all guys that came from Stampede Wrestling. Like, so it's sort of a, it, there's this glorious uh, legacy, but then there's this kind of sad legacy. Heath is very accurate, as all three of those stories he mentioned transcended pro wrestling. On the tragic end, the murder-suicide of Chris Benoit and his family had wall-to-wall cable news coverage in the summer of 2007. Owen Hart's death at the age of 34 on May 23rd, 1999, which happened in the middle of a WWE pay-per-view, and in a controversial decision, they continued on with the show despite Owen falling to his death in the ring. It was major international news, and his funeral, which was held in Calgary, had thousands of fans flocked outside and wrestlers from all over the business flying in to pay their respects to one of the most well-respected and liked wrestlers from that era who was only just then reaching the peak in his career. We discussed the Montreal Screwjob in episode one, but if you want to learn more about Bret Hart and why this incident was so pivotal, watch the 1998 documentary Hitman Hart, 
Wrestling with Shadows, directed by Paul J., which is a National Film Board of Canada production that won the Best Canadian Feature Documentary Award at the 1999 Hot Docs Canadian International Documentary Festival. It is widely regarded as the greatest wrestling documentary of all time. And as it celebrates its 25th anniversary this year, there is an anniversary edition Blu-ray set for release, which includes a new commentary track with Brett looking back on the incident. So what is Stampede Wrestling's legacy? Otto Gentile, co-founder of Calgary Wrestling Promotion Can-Am, had this to say. Bret Hart, probably the most famous wrestler to come out of Calgary. We have his brother Owen, who tragically passed away, but probably one of the best uh, wrestlers in the world. Davy Boy Smith, yep. Dynamite Kid, yep. Dr. D, David Schultz, Chris Benoit, Bad News Allen, The Great Gamma, The Cuban Assassins, Abu Weasal, the manager of all managers. Yeah, uh, Like, Dan these Crawford. names alone, yeah. all those names came out of Calgary, Calgary Wrestling. Transcend the world. You know? Yes, yeah. and they transcend the world, exactly. Uh, they're, Brian Pillman. They're known every... Yes, Brian Pillman, exactly. Yeah. Harry Smith. Yep. Uh, Davy Boy's son. Yeah. He's doing incredible things. And I mean, like, like all those names that I named off are centered around one thing and that's Stampede Wrestling which is Calgary based wrestling company that took the world by storm Mm -hmm. and they never ever get enough credit and it's I enjoy giving the credit back to the man the man that created it all and that was Stu Hart Yeah. And that's why we have our championship that we created in honor of him. We will talk more about the legacy of Calgary Wrestling in our next episode, appropriately titled Calgary's Wrestling Legacy. Thanks for listening to Body Slam Poetry. This episode was written and produced by Ben Goodman. Assistant producer Sophie Chardon. Edited by Jed Mabaza. Stay tuned for episode three, Calgary's Wrestling Legacy. Additional sources, MGM, New Line Cinema. This initiative is made possible by the Community Radio Fund of Canada.